Welcome back, everybody. It is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Hope everyone's having a great day. Today's guest hails from Nashville, Tennessee, via Los Angeles, via Maryland. He is the guitar player for the band Kicks, formerly also of Rhino Bucket. We have Brian Damage Forsyth. How you doing, Brian? Great, great. Good to be here. Well, thanks for doing the show. I do appreciate it. I always start the the podcast whenever we have a new guest with the same first question. And that question is, just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock band has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance, that hooked them on rock and roll. What was it for you? I would say, um, well, you know, I'm... I'm a little older, so I've been around since before the Beatles. So when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, that pretty much, you know, I, I saw that and it was like, oh, that's what I want to do. And then the, the the actual song, the the first Beatles song that really like grabbed me was um, I saw her standing there. And I remember my brother had the 45. I had I want to hold your hand on one side, and I saw her standing there on the other side. And when I put on the flip side of I want to hold your hand and heard I, uh, I saw her standing there, I was like, man, <laughs> just from the first count off of that song, it's just like, I, I just couldn't get enough. And I think I was only like three or, no, I guess I was five or six around that time. But um, I remember uh, just putting that thing on the record player and just repeating it and repeating. I just couldn't get enough of that song. It was crazy. <laughs> so, so that must have that must have been you know that's that's the song that's the one that just totally like just inspired me and where did it go from there who inspired you to pick up a guitar well i well soon after that i just started like playing air guitar or whatever you know i could pick up that looked like a guitar <laughs> and and pretended to be you know I put on Beatles records and and pretend I was you know well actually back then I played upside down because I'm left-handed so you know I always you know I saw Paul playing the bass upside down I didn't realize it was a bass I just thought it was a guitar <laughs> but uh, you know I saw that and I thought oh I could be him and so I would hold the guitar upside down and my my younger brother would would stand next to me and his name's John. So he'd be John Lennon and I'd be falling apart. <laughs> That's awesome. So you picked yeah. up, you, you picked up your, your guitar, you know, because of what you saw with the Beatles. Uh, who were your other influences on the guitar as you, as you grew as a player? Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, the early days I was just goofing around, you know, just wanting to be a, a musician or, you know, a rock star or whatever. But, uh, yeah, as time went on and I actually picked up the guitar, um, man, I've gone through so many different phases. I mean, starting out, it was Bob Dylan just because, um, my brother had all these songbooks and Bob Dylan was like the easy guy. You know, you could learn all the, the regular chords and just strum along to the songs. And so that's kind of how I got into it. But, but then, um, but then, you know, but then bands like Cream came along. I heard Eric Clapton, you know, Sunshine of Your Love. That that hit me really strongly when I heard that. In fact, um, the album Disraeli Gears is my, my first 
the first album I actually owned. Before that, I just listened to my brother's albums. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was Eric Clapton, and soon after that, I heard uh, well Jimi Hendrix, of course, and then uh, but you know in the early days, Jimi Hendrix was completely over my head. I just didn't get even. I couldn't even like comprehend what he was doing. And then, then, you know, then there was Santana, and then when you got closer to the the late 60s, early 70s, you know, the Allman Brothers came into the picture, you know, the Southern, whole Southern rock thing I was into, too. So, you know, I went through the Dickie Betts thing, and, uh, I don't know, there's so many. It's hard to even, it's hard to even remember all of them. Oh, and also, ZZ Top came along, and Billy Gibbons is one of my, he's like a huge influence on my playing. The list can go on. I mean, I can I can keep on going, but but those are my early influences. Now, as you evolved as a player, as evolved as a musician, you know, the Beatles were a big impact to you uh, to you with 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 the songs that were you know they were putting out at that time. You know, you you mentioned Cream, you mentioned Hendrix, you mentioned Billy Gibbons. Was there a moment where you became interested in wanting to get on stage and? being in a band and do that for a living. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think when that happened. Well, I mean, from the beginning I wanted to, I remember, uh, you know, I started out on acoustic, but as soon as I switched over to electric guitar, you know, my friend, you know, I remember trying to put a band together with, with these friends of mine and they didn't even, they weren't even musicians. I was like, we were talking about them learning how to play just so we could put a band together. But, but once I got to junior high, I found you know, other musicians that were playing. And I, I immediately, you know, started putting things together, going to people's houses and jamming with people. And so, you know, it was, it was probably 13, 14. Well, I, I would say 14 is when I put my first band together. I, I did um, right out of high school. Uh, senior high school I was in another band I mean I was always evolving to different you know changing things changing different bands and band members but I, I got involved with this one band that um, we started out as a three piece and and we moved down to um, to um, Florence Alabama which is right across the river from Muscle Shoals and all that and uh, we uh rented a band house and we, we recruited uh, another guitar player and a keyboard player from down there. And then we just, for the next, like, I guess it was probably eight months or so. We just toured nonstop, like Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, Georgia, just all around that whole area. Just, um, nonstop. I mean, we played and played and played and, um, so that was, that was a band. That's kind of where I kind of, learned how to really do it in that band. I mean, we, we played every kind of, it, we were a cover band, so we played, you know, cover songs, but it, it was such a wide spectrum from hard rock to country to, to disco, because it was the mid seventies. This was like 75, 76. So that was all pretty kicks. And when I came back from Alabama, we came, it was, uh, uh, the three original members, we, we returned back to Maryland and then we recruited a different, or got another guitar player and then we, we continued on from there for another year or so before I met, uh, 
met Ronnie, and and that's when when the kicks thing started. Now that was an interesting so, time. So that was like early '80s, correct? Late '70s, early '80s. Oh, uh, this was mid mid '70s to okay. later '70s. <laughs> okay. Yeah, when I when I ran into Ronnie, uh, I ran into Ronnie at a Seven Eleven late at night, and I was uh, I, we, we we ran into each other by the by the uh, microwave. I think I was heating a burrito or something, and. Um, and at the time, Ronnie was in a, a popular cover band in the area, and he was leaving that band. So I was had auditioned to take his spot in his band um, because they were a, a well-known band, and they, they had gigs booked and all this stuff. And uh, and then I run into Ronnie. He goes, uh, he goes, uh, you know, I mentioned it to him that I, I tried out for his spot. And he goes, oh, man, you don't want to play with those guys. <laughs> he says, they're never going to get anywhere. They, they never they never want to learn any new songs. And, and uh, he, he goes, um, this guy, Donnie Purnell, uh, is trying to put this band together. Him and I are, are doing this band, and we're looking for another guitar player. And, and he asked me if I'd be interested. And, um, and I remember thinking about it. I told him I'd think about it, but I remember thinking, huh, do I want to start from scratch with something completely new or do I want to jump into a band that's already working so I can make some money? And, uh, but you know, of course, the, you know, um, they talked me into it, obviously. <laughs> and, and we got together just to try it out at, uh, in my parents' basement. And this was uh, the, right at the end of 1977, so that's where we started. In in uh, and it took a couple years from there till we found Steve and, and and Jimmy. So we went through a few other singers before we found Steve. And when you guys were starting out, how was the creative process for Kicks? I mean. You know, was it you know everybody bringing their own ideas? I mean, obviously, you guys had been around for a bit so you know you kind of had a little bit of it going at that time but you know when 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 Steve came in and all you know the you know the the band really started to take off with kicks how was that process you know right off the bat that, that very first rehearsal when we got together the song that we jammed on to see how it felt was Atomic Bombs like Donnie already had that song and that's the one we we put together and played so that was the very first song we played. And Donnie was always like that. He had so many ideas and he already had kind of like a batch of songs at that point that we ended up putting together. Even though we went out and played as a cover band, we always had these originals that, that, that Donnie had brought into the band. So Donnie was always the primary songwriter back then. And, um, you know, once we got Steve and Jimmy and, and we, you know, really started putting demos together to, to try to get a record deal. Um, we did all have our ideas, but it was almost like, you know, for every one idea I had, Donnie had 10 and, and Steve maybe had two or three. So it was always like, uh, you know, trying to keep up with all Donnie's stuff. So, uh, you know, our stuff hardly ever ended up getting in there. And Donnie's was always so much better because he, you know, he worked on it. Um, you know, he, I don't know. He was just nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys land your record deal. 
you know, you released your debut record, you know, you mentioned in your, you know, biography about how the record company really left you alone during that recording process. And then as the second album came in, they took more control of what you guys were doing. Yeah, I, I guess that's kind of maybe their pattern, but yeah, that first record, yeah, it was pretty much, we just, we just copied the demos really. Um, and they brought in Tom Allen as the producer. And I remember he tried rearranging some of those songs at one point and, and, and then he just realized that it, it worked better the way we had it. He goes, ah, no, just go ahead and play it the way you were doing it. So we ended up just playing everything like we had been playing it. And, and, uh, yeah. And then of course they put that record out. And at that time, um, this was 1981 and Atlantic didn't even have a, like a heavy metal, uh, department. It was just all lumped into all the same. So we were, you know, in there with Phil Collins and all these people and, they didn't know what to do with us. So, you know, of course that first record didn't do a whole lot. So when the second record came around, they, they were trying to push us more into like the singles, uh, you know, singles pop songs or whatever, or, or, um, you know, more commercial songs. Yeah. I find that really interesting about the eighties in, in, in the music, you know, when you look at the very first part of the eighties, the earliest from like 80 to, 83 you know the music was much more raw was much more uh, organic in terms of how it was created it wasn't it didn't feel forced it didn't feel like you know it became you know later on in the decade and when you look at the you know the mid part of the age like 84 to like 87 you know you start to see it get glammed up you start to see it really become a product you know, for MTV, for radio, you know, image really mattered back in the middle part of the A's, not so much in the early A's. I mean, image always matters, but there was more of a focus on it. How did you guys keep up with that evolution during that time? I mean, we were very aware of what was going on around us, of course, and, and, and MTV really, uh, I mean, that was such a cool thing when that first came around and uh, you know, you could watch all those bands, like all those videos. Before that, it was almost like it was very rare. There was only, you know, you had like Don Kirshner's rock concert and and uh, Midnight Special and those kind of shows where you could sort of see bands. But a lot of times, you know, you know, the only time you could see a band was when they came through town, which wasn't very often. So it was always this big mystery, and then you. But but as soon as MTV came around, it was almost it was just right there in front of you, and and um, so yeah, it was like that whole well the image thing. It was we start when we started out, it was pre glam, kind of pre. I guess there were Judas Priest was around, but it, there wasn't like the eighties metal thing yet. And uh, I mean Van Halen had just come out. But uh, but we were more like um, Aerosmith and Cheap Trick influence, maybe the Stones, um, and uh, also the Ramones, because uh, the Ramones to us were the the ultimate like touring band. Um, they weren't like huge on a big scale. Uh, so the, it was just like a van and an equipment truck, and that's what we did. We had a van and an, an equipment truck, and um, 
we carried our own sound and lights just like the Ramones. That's what we modeled ourselves after in the beginning. And we had our own sound man, our own light man. So no matter where we went, we always, we were consistent. We always looked the same. We always sounded the same, you know, as far as the stage, the stage. Um, but the looks part of it, in the early days, it was a little more punkish, you know, stripped down like 81 back then. And then, then later, uh, you know, of course the glam thing came in, Hanoi rocks came around and, uh, that influenced everything. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was Hanoi rocks and it was, you know, Motley Crue with the back cover of theater of pain and poison and all those bands. Yeah. Well, this was before poison. Even I remember discovering Hanoi rocks before they even came to, to the U S and going, man, look at these guys. It's like, you know, they had that pretty boy, uh, Michael Monroe out front, but, but the rest of the guys, they all looked like Keith Richards, the, the scummy Keith Richards guys in the back. And I just remember seeing that and going, man, those guys look so cool. Um, you know, of course then Poison took it and sort of did the Kmart version and, and <laughs> you know, it was like the, it was a, it wasn't as sleazy as 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 Hanoi Rocks, but uh, yeah, that whole thing just exploded around that that time period. And and during that time, as you guys are making music, you know, you guys are you know more of a stripped down band, like you said, like Stones and and uh, you know the Ramones and and bands like that, Aerosmith. And now you see these bands really kind of glam it up, right, and really kind of focus on their image. How was that? Was there uh-huh. was there pressure from the record company to adhere to what other bands were doing? I mean, you guys pretty much, in my opinion, stayed the course, right? You guys kind of did your own thing. You kind of looked your own way. I mean, maybe you teased the hair a little bit here and there, but I never felt like you guys went full-on glam like a lot of other bands did. Right, because, um, yeah, yeah, when Poison came out, they, they kind of took it over the top. And, um, and I was personally, I was always, uh, a Keith Richards fan. And, and, you know, that's what hit me, struck me about Hanoi Rocks was, was the, well, they were like Johnny Thunder's Keith Richards influence. And, and, um, I just, I, I always, I just always liked that, that, just that more, um, the scummy kind of, Glam. I, I didn't go for the, like the really pretty glam, like the sleazy and, um, type, like type glam. Yeah, just grungy and kind of yeah. Because <laughs> I I remember we used to do in the early days we would we we did a bunch of uh, shows with with Poison. Actually, even before they were Poison, we used to play with those guys when they were Paris. But once they they were signed, they came back east and and did a bunch of shows with us opening before their record took off. And I remember, um, I remember we were at Hammerjacks and they were opening for us and, and Brett Michaels, it, he, uh, I remember him making a comment cause I hadn't shaved. So I had like, just like this scruffy unshaven kind of, you know, shadow. And, and, and then I put eyeliner on, but I, you know, I wasn't like the lipstick guy. I, I would just use like the eyeliner to get the Keith Richards thing. And I remember, I remember uh, Brett 
the, those guys were all into the foundation makeup and like the girl looks, you know, putting all those stuff on. And I remember him looking at me, he goes, he goes, do you remember the makeup and you don't shave? <laughs> like he, could, he didn't quite get it. <laughs> it was so funny. But was there, you know, I mean, that era of music produced a lot of great bands and a lot of great songs. And it's always, it's always, always correlates with the image of those bands back then. I mean, you hear the hair band moniker, you hear the glam rock moniker. And sometimes you guys get lumped mm-hmm. into that, which is unfortunate because I never considered you guys a hair band, you know, along with a handful of others. Was there, but was right. there, was there pressure from your record label or your management team or whoever to, you know, glam it up to get more popular, to, to, to gain more traction with, with fans? I mean, you know, there was bands that kind of evolved into that too as well in the 80s. And I always kind of wondered what happened behind the scenes. Well, you know what? Uh, no, we weren't pushed into that at all. In fact, I think that's why it works so well for us because, uh, um, well, in fact, I remember during the, um, right at the end of the recording of Blow My Fuse, uh, we, we had just, before that record, we, we got new management and we got Mark Puma from, from, uh, Freefall, who also did like Twisted Sister and, uh, who else did he do? I don't know. Anyway, he was, he was hanging out at the end of that recording and, and I remember, I, I you know, I had painted nails and all this stuff at that point. And, and uh, I remember him talking to me about maybe trying to tone it down a little bit. Cause he thought I was, I was going a little too overboard. And I was like, what? <laughs> I remember hearing him say that. And I'm like, nah, 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 I know what I'm doing. And, and uh, so that was the only time that anyone ever really said anything to me about it. But it was just, it was funny. It was, it was like pretty much the opposite. Um, but I think the reason we had this consistency is because we looked the way that we looked. It wasn't like someone telling us to look that way. And, and uh, I know there, there's several, like, L.A. bands. You can tell that they were dressed by a, a, a stylist. Like, they, that wasn't their natural way of dressing. And, and you could just spot it a mile away when somebody uh, does that, you know. And and it's it's like night and day when it's natural to the person or or when when someone's told them what to do, you know. Absolutely, I I remember that era very well because I was very young in the early eighties, and I remember whenever my mother went to the grocery store, she'd take me with, and I would go. I'm going by the magazine section, you know. This is when a this is this is when a five six seven year old kid could like you know just sit down in an aisle and not be bothered by anybody you know or you don't have to worry right. about your kid. So I would just grab the hip parader, I grab the circus magazine and any other rock magazine. I would just sit there while she would shop and I would read about all these bands and you know we you know I, I I'm from Chicago so we had a lot of you know good rock radio stations back in the day that you know you you'd hear the band on radio and then you pick up the magazine you'd be like oh wow okay this is cool. And I just remember, you know, like I said, the early part of the 80s being very raw, being very stripped down, whereas the middle 80s, you know, started to glam it up. And towards the end of the late 80s, early 90s, it almost became where bands were being signed based on their looks, not as much as how they played. And, you know, I think that had a huge, huge impact on the on the 
success moving into another decade of that period of music? Yeah, in fact, um, I mean, well, that, that's kind of like the pattern. That's the way that record companies operate. You know, if there's if one band is successful, they try to find every band that looks and sounds like that band and throw them out there. So you get this, like, you know, you get the one band that, that makes an impression and then you get all the ones behind it that are just, like, imitations of it. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You, you see that time and time again. And, you know, if you really want a prime example of that, you can really dissect everything that happened during that period of music in the 80s as to, you know, look at look at how the bands became successful and they reached their peaks. And then all of a sudden you started seeing names of bands. You're like, who are these guys? And they looked like this and they looked like that. And then, you know, it, it really became... I don't want to say a parody of itself, but it became very watered down towards, you know, with the newer bands that were coming out and, you know, with, with, in the early nineties and in the late eighties. Yeah. Well, it was pretty much a parody of itself. (laughs) That's exactly what it was. (laughs) Well, there was a lot of infrastructure too, back then too. You mentioned MTV and you mentioned the outlet that bands had and record labels had to, you know, put basically anything out during the eighties and it would more than likely be successful because the music was good. The, you know, the bands looked good and everybody watched MTV cause it was still fresh. It was still new. Whereas, you know, prior to that rock radio kind of did their own thing. Rate rock radio was essentially following MTV and there was an infrastructure for rock music. Now, present day for rock music whether it's a existing band putting out new music or a new band trying to get discovered in my opinion it really lacks infrastructure for rock music and there's so many factors as to why you know rock music has kind of fallen off being accepted by the mainstream I mean it never really was but it has had its moments but I look at the infrastructure you know when when bands put out new music where does it go you know, there's so many platforms for people to find it, but it doesn't have the impact like it had with MTV back in the day like it does now. Yeah, yeah, because MTV put it right in front of your face. They did, and they were the ones that were breaking bands all the time. You know, I mean, they were the ones that were putting out new music. Bands were becoming successful. And now with the current state of rock music where, you know, rock music is never going to die. There's always going to be... Um, you know, rock music being played, but in terms of it being relevant, you know, it seems like it's 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 more and more being pushed to the background instead of to the fore, you know, the forefront. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, yeah, I know. I don't, I don't even listen to the radio. <laughs> I mean, I have I have XM, but it's so pre programmed, you know. It, any of those stations, you just hear the same stuff all all the time. It's you know rarely hear, hear anything new, unless it's like a, some special program where someone's going to play something new. But um, even you know, like uh, well, I hate to bring up Hair Nation because um, there, there's a there's an example, Hair Nation. Like I I, I don't know, I I just don't like I, I don't. I don't see kicks like relating to that whole thing as much, but um, that, they do play us on that, that, that station. But I remember um, Luke Carl talking about uh, when that, when our, 
when Ryan Bucket put our, out our last record a, a couple of years ago, um, Luke was talking about how great that record was, and and uh, I had sent him a CD, and he he, he was he was complimenting me on it and he goes, but you know, I have to be honest, I can't play any of this on the radio. Cause you know, he has to just play what's on the list or whatever they, they give him, you know, that's, he has no choice. Yeah. That's, that's really unfortunate. I mean, that's, and that's really where, you know, we've had many discussions here on the podcast about, you know, what are the issues facing rock music today? And there's a lot, I mean, there isn't just one factor that, you know, affects how people absorb rock music. I mean, you could talk about the physical connection. You could talk about, you know, how, you know, how and where it's being played or, you know, what platforms you can find it on. But that essentially is a huge thing. You know, I mean, it's very hard for new music to get exposure. And it's not because it's bad. I mean, a lot of the music that's been coming out over the last decade and beyond has been very good. You know, you talk about the Rhino Bucket record you know, the last one you guys did. That was phenomenal. I mean, you know, but you, it, it just, for whatever reason, it's, it's, it's not being played. There's no infrastructure for it. You know, whereas back in the day when you guys were coming up and, 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 you know, releasing your albums, there was the outlet for it and rock radio picked up on that. And there was almost, it was almost like a machine in essence that allowed you guys and other bands to, grab an audience you know now you've got a dozen different platforms you've got no rock radio virtually doesn't exist you know classic rock radio plays the same 50 songs over and over again and you know it, it it's it's i love the genre rock i mean I, I grew up listening to rock music you know five six years old kind of like you you know i mean i connected with the early journey records and you know van halen and kiss and all that stuff and, you know, now I, I just see where, you know, there's so many great new bands. There's so many great albums being released by existing bands. And it's like this stuff needs that outlet, needs that infrastructure. Yeah. And, and well, and now, I mean, everything's changed. I mean, there's only a handful of, of big record labels anymore. So most people are on little indie labels and, you know, an indie label can't get anything played. It doesn't seem like. Unless, unless it's like, um, you know, Little Steven's thing. I mean, he, he, he'll put a new band on his show, which is really cool. Right. But, um, but that's rare, you know. Where do, where do you think the change happened? I mean, obviously, you know, the grunge era replaced the, the you know, the quote-unquote glam era or 80s rock, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was, I think it's even beyond that. I think it even, you know, maybe became after that grunge era where maybe people started to absorb music differently. And there was, you know, obviously MTV is a non-factor now. They don't even play music. You know, rock radio is very yeah. formulated. You know, what have you seen? I mean, you've you've been in the trenches, you know, in, during that decade. And you, and you continue to make music. And you've got a really interesting journey you know, with your life too, with how you made music and the obstacles that you have to overcome. Where do you see things and, and, and how do you, how do you, what do you feel the biggest impact that faced rock music, you know, and, and how it affects music today? Uh, well, probably the internet. Um, you know, when that came along, 
that between that and and um, you know digital recording, you know Pro Tools and all that, you know anyone can record at their home and put it on the internet, you know, on YouTube and uh, so there's there's more access to throw things out there without having to go through a record company or any of that. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, all those, the big labels started to kind of fold into each other. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, yeah, the, the whole business changed. It, it was digital music. It's, you know, instead of the physical product, um, that changed everything. So it sort of just morphed into a different kind of a thing. And, and uh, you know, and there's there's always good parts about it and there's, there's also bad parts about it. I mean, it's good that somebody can record like a really professional sounding recording in their bedroom, you know, and throw it out there. And, and sometimes it'll hit on YouTube and become like some huge success. And, you know, you couldn't have done that back in the seventies. <laughs> no, not at all. You know, I, I always kind of wonder when the whole Napster thing came out and the file sharing came out, you know, the record labels, you know, got these streaming services on board and, you know, they, they figured out how to get some reoccurring revenue by getting, you know, subscriptions and, you know, they were fighting for the musicians and the musicians were scared because they weren't going to make any money with this file sharing. And now, you know, the, the, the record companies figured it out and yeah, you, you've got your, your heavyweights at the top, but you know, the, 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 the new rock bands that are coming out or new music that's coming out, it's really hard to make money on that. You got to get out and tour. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I get, I get those statements, <laughs> you know, and it'll show, it'll show, uh, I don't know, like Pandora or somewhere, you, you'll, you know, it'll show like uh, 17,000 or maybe even more. I forget what the number was. I, I, you know, I'll go through the list and there's like, like all these um, plays. And then you look at the, the amount of money you get. And it's like uh, 0. 0.01 per, uh, cents, <laughs> you know, or something like that. Or you get three cents for like, uh, 20,000 plays or something crazy. I mean, it's probably not even that good, but, uh, yeah, it's terrible. You can't make money doing that. There's, there's just no way. And, and you know, record sales now are, are completely different. I mean, that, that whole like gold and platinum, I mean, that doesn't even like, um, it's not even, it doesn't even work anymore. Like it used to, uh, now they consider, you know, the gold was 500,000 copies. Now they consider if, if you sell 20,000 copies, you did really well. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. The game has changed. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's still the streaming involved, but I mean, I'm talking about physical like CDs or whatever. And I still buy CDs. I'm, I, you know, I, you know, I come from that generation where I want the physical copy. I want to be able to hold it, touch it, feel it and listen to it at the same time. I think that's, you know, yeah, the, I do too. <laughs> you know, the, the, the experience of buying music was something that I loved growing up and I never lost that passion and never lost that love of, you know, holding it in my hand. And I think that affects too, you know, when you think of kids today, you know, everything, it comes from thin air, right? You know, they're on their phone. They can, if they want to hear a song, they can click on something, download it, play it. And then if they got a bunch of songs, they skip, 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 play, skip, 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 play. It's very different of how the younger generation absorbs it, 
Whereas, you know, when I was growing up, Friday night was the record store night with me and my buddies, and we'd go to the record store, we'd thumb through albums for like an hour, and then we'd cruise around and, and, and we'd listen to, you know, the cassette or the CD or whatever. It was an experience. And, you know, I think yeah. I think it affects all genres of music, but I think rock music is definitely affected by that. Yeah, and there's something there's something to um you're having the, the the either the album or the CD where it's in a in a running order cuz bands, you know, when when a band puts a record together, you know, we think about, you know, the order of the songs and all that. It's like a set list. And uh it, you know, it's different than just listening to random songs than it is to listen to a whole record you know, one band in the order that they, they intended it to be heard. You know, it's almost like this experience that, that yeah, the younger generation is missing out on. Sequencing is definitely very important. I mean, I remember, like you just said, you know, you'd, you'd have the first song on the album, which was meant to, you know, just punch you right in the gut and get you going. Yeah. And it's similar to, it's similar to seeing a band live. I mean, I take my son to concerts all the time. And, you know, I remember seeing a show. I remember seeing you guys live back in the day. And, you know, the band would come out and it was just like zero to 60 in three seconds. And you were on your way for however long the band played. And you walked uh-huh. out and, and you were like either really pumped up or you were drained because the energy that was, that it was creating, you know? Right. Yeah. So you've had an interesting journey too. I mean, after you know, uh, you know, the '80s and early part of the '90s, and, and you know, the the music that you were playing, you know, kind of went away. You know, you you had some obstacles in your life. You know, you 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 had a lot of different projects going. What was it about mm-hmm. your perseverance that helped you keep going? I mean, you know, there's a lot of times when when you know things do get you down and 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 life becomes something of what you didn't expect but there's that perseverance is that motivation to keep going what was that for you uh wow um i guess it's just uh i don't know i'm just like a i guess i'm just like a born musician and so no matter what's going on i'm always playing music somewhere with somebody so, you know, it never stops for me. Like when I, I left Kicks in 93 and moved out to LA, I just, uh, well, I put something together before I even got out there and um, and took it from there. And, and I got involved with a bunch of different things. And uh, so I always had something somewhere. In fact, I remember the early 2000s, at one point I was juggling five different bands. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd have back to back, like I'd, I'd have have to have these rehearsals. So I try to schedule so the the two of the bands would be in the same rehearsal space, so I could go from one rehearsal down the hall to the other rehearsal, and then you know, and then that was it was crazy because I was working full time at, at that time, getting up at four thirty a.m. So I would have like. A, you know, these rehearsals and then like on a Wednesday night or something, I'd play like at the cat club on sunset and get home at like three in the morning and then have to get up at four thirty to go to work. I, I don't know how I, I pulled it off, but I, there's just something, 
there's just something in me that just keeps me going like that. And, and I feed off of it. It's like the, the more that I have going, the more that, the more that I can keep going. <laughs> and I imagine, you know, I, as, I, ma- I imagine as an artist, right? You need to keep going. You need to have all these things going because it helps you evolve as an artist, right? I mean, you know, you're not the same person you were 20, 30 years ago. And as your tastes evolved, so does your music. Yeah, yeah, everything does evolve, and and I'm I'm uh, I mean, my taste in music is all over the place. So, um, you know, I'm, I, I play in a hard rock band, but I love country music too. So, you know, like when I was during the '90s and early 2000s, when when I wasn't doing the kicks thing, that's what that's what the cool thing was. I, I was bouncing around between different styles. I, I'd have a rock band. I have a, um, you know, blues band I was playing in. And then there was this country band I was playing in, you know, just all these different things. So I could sort of fulfill all those, those, uh, musical needs that I have. <laughs> and as you did all these projects, you know, and, and you mentioned, you know, prior to that, um, you know, with, with, with your arrest and everything, how was the best thing for you to, you know, push, mm-hmm. you know, pull through and, and continue on, you know, how does that relate, that experience relate, you know, to those projects? You know, I mean, was there a moment as you were sobering up and, 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 and cleaning yourself up, you know, that, hey, you know, I have all these aspirations that I want to do and play different stuff. Um, was there that moment for you and, and, and to really kind of, you know, see those things through? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, um, yeah, right before I got sober, yeah, it was getting really bad. I was still playing a lot at that point, but it was getting harder to sort of maintain things, (laughs) you know, hold it together. I was starting to miss rehearsals and show up late for shows and you know stuff was starting to fall apart and um but you know yeah so well definitely the so the getting sober is is the best thing that that ever happened getting arrested and all that stuff i mean that, that sort of forced me into it but when i came out the other side i was at a recovery home for like uh what was that? like 14 months i was at this 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 house this recovery house so it was like a kind of a rotating like all these like guys would come in and they'd leave and they come in and like different guys would come in and and um i got to meet so many different people and but uh most of the guys were there through map which is now music care it, it morphed into music cares but um so there was a lot of musicians at this house where i was and um I put a band together at the house. <laughs> well, I was there, they had a garage and they had drums set up in the garage and we, you know, I had a little, I brought my little practice amp over and, and uh, I had a couple guitars there. So I was still playing music at that point. It, it was almost like, you know, the whole recovery thing happened, uh, but the music just kept on, I mean, it just kept on going the way it always had been going. It, it just, the, you know, once I did get sober, I, I, it um, it was a little more clear. You know, I could I could actually um, I don't know. 
<laughs> you were able to kind of more uh, somehow be more creative, maybe. Well, that even that didn't get hampered by the, you know, it was weird. <laughs> it's weird that part of me just seems to be able to function in any any situation. But yeah, I mean, it was it, my clarity was it was a lot. My mind was a lot clearer, you know, once I got sober and. So, so each each of the projects that happened after that were a little bit uh, better. Like the, the the band that that, that um, I was playing in, coming out of that recovery house, that was a cool little band. And we started playing around. It was uh, the singer songwriter guy, and he'd write these just raw songs. But then, uh, uh, Reeve was the bass player from Rhino Bucket. He, he played bass in that band. And uh, between him and the drummer, uh, we we take this guy's just raw. He played acoustic, and we just take these raw ideas and make them into these cool, almost like uh, I don't even like something that would have come out of Muscle Shoals or something in the seventies. Really cool sounding stuff. But uh, that band didn't quite last because the drummer ended up relapsing, and so it kind of fizzled out. But but right after that is when Rhino Bucket came along and I started playing with them like even before Kicks got back together. So, you know, that was, I took that a lot more serious than like during the nineties, there was a lot of stuff that would happen for a while and then it would just fall apart because, you know, everybody involved was doing drugs and drinking and <laughs> yeah. so, so it seemed like, yeah, the, the projects that happened after I got sober were a little bit more intense and, and went a little bit farther. Here we are in 2020. You know, you you. I know you guys are touring. Your Kicks is touring this year. But what does your year look like? You know, in terms of making music. Uh, like making new music. Playing live, making music. You know, I mean, it sounds like you're always looking to make. You know, or have different projects and in, 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 on the side. Are you doing any of that this year? Not yet. I mean, I, I just got. It's funny you, you brought that up because our our, uh, our uh, Kix's uh, booking agent he just sent out this whole list of the gigs so far this year, and our calendar is pretty much full. It's just nonstop already. You know, all the way through the end of the year. And um, but I'm you know I'm here in Nashville now. I've been here not quite a year yet, but. Uh, I'm starting to get that little itching to maybe do something on the side kind of thing again. So I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities, especially around here. Absolutely. I mean, you're around musicians everywhere in Nashville, right? Yeah. Really good musicians too. In fact, I'll go out and see somebody play, you know, and I, and I, and I'm like, Oh man, I better, you know, I should uh, practice a little bit more maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So you guys are starting a tour. Um, tell me more about that. Well, we um, I mean, we have this agent. Uh, uh, he's based in L.A. Uh, the agency's called Big Time Entertainment. But he is um, the guy Sullivan that runs the, the agency. is originally from Boston, and he's a huge Kicks fan. He used to sneak in the shows when we play there when he he was underage, he would sneak in. So, you know, when we signed with him, he was like, Oh man, I'd love to book you guys. I know I can do it. And, uh, and he's taken it. And I mean, I guess we signed with him. 
I guess he, we started playing shows around 2008 when he, he was booking, he started booking us. And, uh, just every year it gets more and more and more and more. And, uh, I mean, every, it seems like at the, he, he'll go, he'll, he'll send out like this, um, well, like the list of the gigs, but, but every once in a while he'll put like, you know, you guys have, uh, um, topped like last year's numbers and he'll write like the, the, the gross income that we made in that year and it'll be like wow you know I had no idea <laughs> so it's really cool I mean he's really uh, been really good for us well it's good to know that your music still resonates today I mean I enjoy you guys I was a fan of you guys back in the day I, I know that experience of sneaking into a club underage to see you um, I think it was the Thirsty Whale back in outside of Chicago back in the day. I think I was like 15 or 16. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I remember doing that as well. And I remember just listening to you guys and just always enjoying your music. And it's glad to see that you guys are, you know, back together and playing. And I know you guys just came around to Chicago, I think, back in September of this past year, like outside of Chicago, I think in St. Charles. Oh, yeah, 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 St. Yeah. Charles. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing you guys again. You guys always put on a great show. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that, that we're lucky that we, we can still do it like this. I mean, we've always had a really good show. That, that That's our that's our thing, you know, and, and, um, and nowadays, you know, we're relying, you, you rely on, on playing live. And, and for us, that's a natural, that's, that's our natural habitat. <laughs> and we, you know, we put on that same show every night. So, uh, um, you know, I think that's why we're still going like we are because, and we're attracting more and more people because of these, uh, you know, the festivals and then the, the rock cruises and all that. So you get people from, well, pretty much all around the world on, on those cruises. They'll come from Europe. Um, so so all these fans that, like back in the old days, had heard of us, but they never saw us. And then they see us and they go, oh, man, I had no idea. So, I mean, that, that, that works in our favor. Yeah, those cruises I hear are are great for bands in term and, and especially for the bands that maybe can't sustain a tour. I mean, they could do the cruise and just kind of come together and, and do that. And people will come there, come on those cruises to go see that band who doesn't really tour that much. I mean, you guys are different; you guys tour, but I've, I, I I I think that's awesome that it provides that platform for a lot of musicians and a lot of bands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, because it, it pays well for one thing. So, you know, a band that doesn't tour, it, it still financially makes financial sense for them to come and do the cruise, you know, for, uh, even as a one-off. But um, the thing is, too, is, uh, you know, even if it's a band that's not that well known, um, they're right there. You know, the the whole ship has the access to see this band, and maybe they had never seen this band before, and it just sort of, you know, it's a really good like promotional thing for for bands like that. I mean, like that uh, that band DAD. Oh, I love those guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I, I remember seeing a couple videos here and there on MTV back in the old days, and then I'd see, hear a song on YouTube, and I go, man, that's a really cool song but I'd never seen him live. And then I got to see him on the ship. And if, you know, if it hadn't been for that, I probably never would have seen him live. 
Yeah, I mean, they're from what? It's, Finland, I think? No, they're from Denmark. Denmark, okay. Yeah, and there's a lot of people on, on the boat that had heard of them or, or some that hadn't even heard of them. And, uh, and you know, those, those guys are great. Yes, absolutely. The The album they had was No Fuel Left for the Pilgrims back in early 90s, and I love that. I wore that record out. Uh, they had Rose Tattoo on the cruise, and that's another band that rarely tours. And, man, those guys. I mean, I, I was always a Rose Tattoo fan. I got to see them back in the early days, back in the early 80s, probably 83. And, um, man, they were so good. I couldn't believe it. I I mean, I I could believe it, but, you know, you always wonder what, you know, you haven't seen a band in 30 or 40 years, and then you're you're wondering what's going to happen when when they play again, if they're still going to have that energy or or whatever. But, man, Rose Tattoo, I I mean, I was just, I sort of went out to check them out, and I just couldn't leave. I stood there, and I stood in the sun even. Like, by the time I was watching them, my face was sunburned. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny you you mentioned that because they are coming to Chicago in March, and I've never seen them, and I've always loved them too. And I was oh, they're good, they're so good. Yeah, I do. I do want to check that out because I've got a couple of their albums, and I've always enjoyed their stuff. And I'm like, they'll never tour the states or whatever. And there's this club downtown the city called Reggie's, and I, I always get their you know their their updates. Lo and behold, I get an email: Rose Tattoo performing. I think it's either March or April. And I'm like, I have to go see this. I got to go see this. This is like, you know, when when are they going to come back again? You know, what, another two, three years if they do that? So I can't wait to yeah. check them out. Yeah, yeah. Angry Anderson still has it. He's saying, uh, man, just the, their whole vibe on stage is so cool to watch. They, they look like they're, I mean, they're, they're like intense, but they're having fun at the same time. It's really good. Really good. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. That's awesome. Well, hey, Brian, it's been a blast. I, I appreciate you doing this once again. Uh, you know, great conversation. Love talking with you. Um, look forward to doing it again down the road. Okay, yeah, yeah. My pleasure. I, I always love talking about music, so. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So look forward to the tour dates for Kicks. Once again, everybody, it is Brian Damage Forsyth from the band Kicks, formerly also of Rhino Bucket. This is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Thanks again, everybody, and we'll talk again soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.